Our mission here at Crosspoint Baptist Church, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We are coming towards the end of this series that we've been in since January through the New Testament book of Acts. And we've been calling this series the action of the church because that's what Acts is about, is what the church was doing. God was moving and it was moving through the church. And so if you would open your Bibles to Acts 27, we're going to look at the, the whole chapter this morning. Lord willing, one more message to go to finish up this book. But I'm calling this sermon, Life's Problems. Anybody got any problems? Amen. Life is full of them. Well, you're going to see how this, it's true for the Apostle Paul and how God was working amidst of problems. But there's lots of problems, Right? Lots, life has lots of problems, issue, maybe you translate it drama, okay, life is full of it. Um, anybody want problems in their life? No hands, that's right, nobody wants that one. Um, but yet they still seem to show up on our doorstep routinely. But there's a sense in which problems, though they're unwanted house guests in our life, they're still avenues or vehicles in which God can use to, to teach us things that he teaches us in the dark that he just simply doesn't teach us in the light. So this passage this morning that we're going to look at, we're going to read the very vivid first-hand account of, of Paul's sea voyage to Rome. And, and what we're going to see, we're going to see that there is intense problems in Paul's life. And I'm hoping that every single one of us that are here today can identify it on some different levels uh, um, the problems that Paul is pa- facing because human life is just full of problems and issues. So I want to focus on a number of different lessons this morning surrounding Paul's voyage that will help us when we face problems. With that, let us read. Showing how old I am, I have to have the readers anymore. Uh, Acts 27 verse 1. It says, and when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other passengers to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius and embarked on a ship of Adamarantium in which they were about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. We put in the sea accompanied by Aristarchus, the Macedonians from Thessalonica. Well, previously, if you remember, God made a promise to Paul. And God said, Paul, you're going to give a testimony to me in Jerusalem. He says, and you're going to do the same in Rome. Paul didn't know how that was going to happen. God didn't give him all the twists and turns and the plans along the way. But Paul knew that he was going to go to Rome somehow. Well, now at this moment, that's exactly where Paul is going. And Paul is accompanied by uh, several different people on this journey. One of which is a Roman soldier, a man by the name of Julius, we're told of. And, and also on this trip is Luke, the author and narrator of this book of Acts. And one of Paul's friends is here, Aristarchus. And I'm sure there's other prisoners and crew members, but we're going to find out later that this boat is full of souls. And they set sail along the coast of Asia, and they're heading to Rome. And this journey, these men don't know it yet, but it's going to be a difficult cruise. Well, first off, this, the timing of this cruise is not all that great. Okay, um, the best season for transversing the Mediterranean Sea is in spring and in summer. And if we jumped ahead, verse 9 is going to tell us that this took place just after the fast. Well, the fast is the Day of Atonement. So we know that this cruise takes place in the fall. 
Well, traveling the seas in the fall, it's not impossible, but it's not real wise. I mean, it's kind of like picture March around here. It can be beautiful one minute, and the next second, like, oh, storms are coming down. You think you're going to die. That's the Mediterranean Sea in the fall. Well, it doesn't take long for problems to show up. Look what happens in verse number 3. The next day, we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the Lea Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we sailed across the open sea along the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lysa. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put, in, put us on board. So these men, they were on a ship, and they had to change ships to a second ship. And the second ship's not going to do real well either. Look what happens, verse 7. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty in Nidus. And the winds did not allow us to go any further. We sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome, coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhaven, near which was the city of Lycia. Okay, it seems like every step along the way, it is, is difficulty of guilt, difficulty. It's, it's like this trip is doomed from the very start. The first boat's not doing real hot, so they get a second boat, and then now they're limping along with their second boat, uh, trying to navigate these seas during a storm. I mean, if you think about it, it seems like this disaster, this, shit, this whole cruise, this trip is a disaster from the start. You know, it seems like God didn't really want to get Paul to Rome. God has already said, hey, Paul, I'm going to get you to Rome, and now they're going, and it, it is doomed every step along the way. I remember years ago, I, um, I wanted to take a family vacation. Okay, I'm using big air quotes because it wasn't much vacation when it was all said and done. And this is back when we were a very young couple. We only had two kids. I think uh, McKenna was about two, Tillman was three, and I wanted to go camping. I want to go on this family van, uh, camping trip, and so I asked Amy, find us a camping spot. She searched and searched, and you can't just head up into the hills. You have to make a reservation, and she found a place at Shaver Lake. And I uh, didn't know this, but this is about to be a horrible trip. But we, I loaded up the truck. I got all the camping gear and the food and whatever, and we headed to the mountains. About the time we hit the mountains, we discover that McKenna gets a car sick real easily. We're not even there, and the back, whole back seat's covered with vomit. And we get to the, to the campsite, and I remember you had to back into the pad, and the pad was about this high above the rest, rest of the campsite. It had this sloping uh, hill, and there wasn't a blade of grass anywhere to be seen. It was just that powdery dirt. And I remember I take McKenna, set her on the ground, and as soon as she hits the ground, she just face-planted down that hill. And she just, she comes up and she is covered head to toe in that dust. And I remember her just smiling at me and she had dirt in her teeth. It was horrible. As Amy, here, try to clean this kid up. And so she's trying to keep clean McKenna up, keep Tillman busy while I set up camp. And no sooner as I got the last tent stake in the ground, McKenna had a fever spike. Out of nowhere. It's like, what are we going to do? We didn't pack any ibuprofen. Turns out the general store was closed. If we're going to drive to the, the store, it's a two-hour drive to the closest convenience store or something. So I just had to pick her up, and I went. I know this isn't the best deal, but I was desperate. Walked into the lake to try to cool her off a little bit. Fortunately, her, her fever broke, and now she's tired. So mom takes her into the, the tent, and they're going to take a little nap while I'm taking, trying to take, take care of the little maniac. 
and he's running around. And I remember I'm sitting in one of those chairs where your butt's about that high off the ground. So you can't get out quickly if you had to. And he's running and he trips and he's going face first into the fire. Yeah. And it's to this day, I saw the hand of God push Tillman to where he's here and then fell out of the, didn't go in the fire. It's like this family vacation was doomed from the very get go. Anybody ever had a vacation like that? Anybody? Yeah. Okay, they're horrible. I have to think that's kind of what Paul and the gang are going through on this boat ride to get to Rome. And so I'm trying to paint this picture of just sheer frustration on these men as, as they're trying to get Paul to Rome so he can appeal before Caesar. Look what happens next, verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive this voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul had said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend winter in, the majority decided to put out from sea there, and on chance somehow they make it to reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So we're reading that Paul and this centurion, they're having this debate, a conversation about what's the next best step to take. And I'm pretty sure this conversation went something like my wife's and I conversation halfway through our trip that we were, we were taking all those years ago. But Luke tells us that the centurion listened more to the, the owner of the ship and the captain than he did do Paul. But, I mean, who could blame him? If you have to make the decisions, who are you going to listen to? Two men that, that make their living on traveling the, the Mediterranean Sea or a former rabbi turned uh, church planner. What would you do? Well, he ended up listening to, to, to the owner of the ship. And they, they're trying to, to, they decide not to go to this harbor but travel the open seas. And they're trying to reach, reach Phoenix. Now, this isn't Phoenix, Arizona. This is an island off the harbor of Crete. But think about this. This isn't Paul's first boat ride. It's not his first rodeo either. He's been all over the Mediterranean Sea. He, he's been on three previous mission trips. And so he has transversed the Mediterranean Sea many times. In fact, if you study the book of Acts, this is at least the 11th time Paul has been on the sea. According to Paul's second letter to the church of Corinth, he wrote how he was shipwrecked three previous times. So Paul has some, uh, some knowledge about what it's like to be on the sea and what it's like to be stuck in a storm. Verse 10 tells us that Paul said, Sirs, I perceive this voyage will be with, with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Now real quick, this is not a word from, Paul, from God to Paul and then Paul to the men. No, this is just simply Paul giving wisdom Wisdom because he's been on these waters and he knows what it's like during a storm. But verse 11 and 12 tells us that, that these men don't listen to him. And I'm thinking that maybe they don't listen to him because if we jumped ahead to verse 37, we would see that this boat is carrying grain. And this, so this, this captain is going to be incentivized if he gets the cargo to Rome during winter. So really what we have here, we have a captain with his mind on his money and his money on his mind. Look what happens, verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. 
But soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could, could not face the wind, we gave way to it. And were driven along, running under the lee of a, of a small island called Cuda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hosting it up, we used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they had run aground on Styrus, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since there was violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest laid on us. All hope of being saved was at last abandoned. So this is the second part of their trip. And when the second part began, it, it seemed like everything had turned around. There was, a, there was this hinge in the, in the cruise, and there, everything is going to be wonderful. In fact, Luke tells us that the south wind blew gently. I think the captain of the ship probably went to Paul and said, Hey, Paul. Nice day for a cruise, right? Hey, Paul, why don't you lay out on the deck of the boat and catch a little tan as we're taking you to, to Rome? I think it was like, hey, looks like you're wrong, Paul. But things would change really quickly. I remember one day my wife and I, we were, I think, as I remember, just the two of us, and we're traveling down the 405 in California. If you've never been on the California freeway system, it can be horrible. First, the 405, there are six lanes of traffic each direction. So that's 12 lanes. You, we would see that and go, okay, it's impossible to have a traffic jam. And you would be wrong. Very wrong. Okay? And so we're cooking down the freeway, just making great time. And I think to myself, man, the 405 is never this empty. This is wonderful. We're making great time. And I'm about to say something. I'm like, don't say it. Don't even say it. I'm not superstitious, but hey, let's not press our luck. And as soon as I thought that, I heard my wife say, I can't believe there's no traffic on the 405. It's like, oh. And I just gave everyone those looks like, you had to say it right. You had to say it. No less than 15 seconds later, we are at a dead stop. And it took us like several hours to go a few miles. And I have to think that's what Paul and, and the captain were like. like you, you had to say it, right? Well, verse 14 tells us a tempestuous wind blew on him. That's a hurricane. It's called a northeaster. It swept down off the land. You know, one moment it's like the sea's like glass, and the next moment men think they're about to die. The account of what, what happened here from Luke in Acts 27, it's done a lot to teach historians how ancient ships worked. Because ancient ships couldn't head into the wind like modern ships could. And so what they had to do, they had to give way to the wind, and it cost them 23 miles as they blew near a, a small island named Cuda. Well, also, ancient ships would, would tow their lifeboats behind them. So that means when the storms come, the, the, the boats, the lifeboats could potentially ram into the main ship and could, could punch a hole in the ship really, really bad. And so what they did is they hosted the lifeboat up onto the main boat, and then they used it to secure the undergirding of the ship. It's a technique that's called frapping. So they wrapped the vessels in ropes or chains or whatever they had in an effort to hold it together. And then we're also told that they lowered the gear. That means they lowered the anchors. And for further precaution, they tried to lighten the load. They just started throwing cargo overboard. They're trying to do whatever they could to try to stay alive. And if it's not bad enough, we're told they lost position from the stars because 
the, the, it says that neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. Picture just being in complete darkness for, for weeks at a time. And so what we have is this, this boat full of people. I think Acts 27 is where we get the term boatload for from. They've abandoned all hope. They're, they're, just, they're at their wit's ends and they're probably crying out. And so in order for these men to survive, what they need is leadership. They need someone to step up and, and to take charge. Enter the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you have should listen to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred loss and injury. I think Paul had a little moment of humanness and said, I told you so. I told you so, guys. Verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. We must run aground on some island. Here's my first point this morning, if you are apt to take notes. Point number one. The problems of life teach us to trust God. Verse 23, Paul says, the God whom I belong to. That's what Paul said. Paul knew that he didn't belong to himself. Paul was a man that understood that someone else had made him. And Paul understood that someone else had redeemed him. And I wonder if we recognize that today. Do you recognize that that you are made by a holy God? Do you recognize that our lives are not our own? In fact, as believers, we are taught that, that we are bought with a price. And the price that bought us was the precious blood of Jesus And then so Paul comes along and he says, hey, an angel of the God whom I belong to and I worship stood beside me and said, you must go before Caesar. Do you hear those words? You must. You must. They refer to a a sovereign God, a sovereign God that has a sovereign plan over Paul's life. So Paul knew that God had a plan for him. Do we know that? Do we know that that God has a plan for for each one of us? As there was a a must in Paul's life, that means there's a must in our life too. God is sovereign over our lives. And what that should do, that should cause us and help us to trust Him no matter how dark the storm may be. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, yeah, pastor, that's easy for Paul to say because Paul had an angel come and and speak to him and he had that message from God to say, hey, everything's going to be okay. Maybe you're thinking if if God would send an angel to me and tell me that I'd be healed of my cancer, I'd be filled with courage too. If God would say, hey, you're not going to lose your job, everything's going to be okay. If God would send an angel and say, hey, that person that you love more than life itself, they're going to make it. If God would do that for me, then I would have faith. But you know what? Think about this. You don't have to have an angel come and speak to you to, plus in the, to trust in the plan that God has for our lives. See, you don't have to have that. You don't have to have an angel to, to come and tell you, hey, everything's going to be okay tomorrow, to, to know that God is always in control. Because just as 
Paul had to exercise faith in the word from the angel. We have to exercise faith in the word that we have from God himself, right? The challenge for us is really this assertion that God is as good as his word. Is God as good as his word? Because if he is, then we need to act accordingly. But the truth is, as human beings, we find it hard to trust God when times are tough. We find it hard to believe God when, when we're struggling with the problems of life. But, but yet, whether or not we are struggling with the problems of life, or, or, or in the other side of the coin, or if we're even living a carefree life, God is still God. Okay? And God is still God, and God is always in control, regardless of the situation that we see going on in our lives. I mean, it's so easy to quote scripture and really pump God to our friends when life is going good, right? Like the, when the sun is out and the, the band is playing, that's when like, man, God is so good and God loves you and God has a plan for you. But when the darkness comes in, when the waves seem to be crashing over the, 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 the walls of our ship, of our life, that's where we really see where our faith is. It's when times are the darkest, We're seeing some dark days, and I have to believe that times are only going to get darker from here. When it seems that there's no stars or no sun for many days, that's where we see where our faith is really at. You see, it's one thing, one thing this passage teaches us, if you're not seeing anything else, that's in a sense that as painful as life's problems are, it really helps us to grow our trust in God. Here's my second point this morning, point number two. The promises of God do not exempt believers from the problems of life. Did you realize that? Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're not going to go through problems. Because check this out. On one hand, God had told told Paul, hey, you're going to go to Rome. You're going to go to Rome. But on the other hand, you look at the situation that Paul's in. It doesn't seem like God wants Paul to get to Rome. And maybe we get confused because we read this and we're like, hey, God is on his throne, God is sovereign, but then I look at this text for face value and it doesn't seem like God wants Paul to get to Rome. Because we think in our mind wrongfully, we think, well, if God wants Paul to go to Rome, then God's going to get him there very quickly and very safely. Wrong. Okay? You see, we need to recognize in Paul's life, it was never easy for Paul. Never. Because if we fast forward in this text, uh, we're going to see that the sailors try to desert, desert him in verse 30. We're going to see everybody tries to kill him in verse 42. The ship is going to run aground at the end of this chapter. If we go to chapter 28, Paul's going to get bit by a snake. It seems like everything is conspiring against Paul in this trip to Rome. You see, and what we do is we look at the situations of our life and we interpret our life like that. Because what we do is we read promises that God has written in like the book of Hebrews where God has said, you know what, I will never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And then we look at the issues that we're going through in our life. We think, God, it sure does seem like you've forgotten me. My world's falling apart, God. It feels like you don't even know who I am. Let's be honest. We go home from a church, uh, church Sunday and we really sit down when our life's falling apart and that's what we think. At church, it seems like, oh yeah, things are going great. No, it's not. And then we feel like God has forgotten us. But there's times that we must understand that the promises of God 
do not exempt a believer from the painful experiences of life. The promise of God, though, they don't make our suffering any less severe. Here's the truth. Cancer still hurts. The loss of a loved one, it still hurts. But there's so many promises in Scripture that we have to know that they give us hope, regardless of how dark our situation may be. Do you remember the day the disciples, they were on the Sea of Galilee, and they're sailing across, and Jesus said, hey, I'm going to get you to the other side. And they get on, on, the, on the water, and in fact, Jesus goes down the bottom of the boat, and I just love that the scripture says he had his head on a pillow. Jesus brought a pillow, and then all of a sudden the storms came. Jesus knew the storms were going to come, and the guys are rowing and rowing, and they think they're going to die, and eventually they go to Jesus and say, Jesus, don't you even care we're going to die? Who's been there? Yeah, I've been there. Life's dark and we think, I'm going to die or I think God's forgotten all about me. When we're pushed to the emotional edge, we're tempted to, to ask a similar question. We think, God, are you even there for me? The promises of God that he loves us and he cares for us, it's true. But the promises that he cares us for us and loves us, that doesn't exempt us from the problems of life. You see, Paul was a man that didn't allow the circumstances, as horrible as they may seem, to allow God's word to be, to be quieted in his heart. You know what? I think this tempestuous wind, they may be blowing in, in Paul's ears, and he couldn't even hear the guys around, and the wind was blowing so hard. But he's a man that still could hear God's word in his heart. And he could hear God say, hey, Paul. You must go to Rome. You must stand before Caesar. That's what God said to Paul. And for you and I, we need to remember that though the circumstances of life, they may be howling in our ears, we can't allow that to drown out God's voice in our heart. Read verse 24 again. And he said, Paul, this is Paul, do not be afraid, excuse me, God, this is God speaking to Paul, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. There's times when it seems like everything's coming down and, and God's going to forget about you. And it's easy to become afraid. Everyone ever gone on a plane and, and you're kind of nervous about the trip? You get on that plane you're th- and you know, okay, air travel is one of the safest forms of travel. And planes rarely go down, but the truth is they sometimes go down. And maybe you get on that, that plane, you buckle your seatbelt, and you look over your left, and there's someone there reading their Bible. Look up ahead, and you see someone bow their head, and they're praying. You're like, this is going to be okay. And then that plane, it rattles down the, the runway, and it takes off, and you reach your cruising altitude. Then all of a sudden, over the intercom, you hear that, uh, yeah, we're about to experience a little turbulence. Uh, and when you hear that, um, <laughs> it's not called stewardess anymore. What's the word? Flight attendants, thank you. Uh, Flight attendants, take your jump seat. When you hear that, it's about to get real, real, okay? (laughs) And then that light comes on, and you're cranking down the seatbelt, and it's rocking and rolling, and things are crashing in that plane. Anybody ever been there? I've been there, and you think, I'm about to become an uh, unlucky statistic. Just because you're a believer, it doesn't exempt you from the, the, the turbulence or the problems of life. Paul says this in verse 25. He says, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I has been told. We must run aground on some island. Paul urges everybody on the ship, trust God. 
Paul was a man that could rest in God's sovereign plan. Paul knows that he's a man that still bears responsibility to act in accordance to God's will. You see, Paul knows that God is sovereign. But at the same time, he, he, God calls us to act in faith and obedience. Okay, here's how it goes. God is in control, okay? And yet still, God calls believers to live life of obedience. So what Paul is going to do, he's going to call the ship's crew and the passengers to act in faith towards God. And that act of faith is to run the ship aground. Look what happens, verse 27. When the 14th night, picture that, 14th night had come. As we're being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that we were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further, and they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for days to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's cargo into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion, the soldiers, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the sailors cut away the ropes of the ship's boats and let it go. Here's my third point for us this morning. Point number three, as believers, we are called to interact and engage in life's problems. After being adrift for two weeks, okay, that's terrible. About midnight, there's some sailors, they were sensing they're about to be in danger, and so they let down the lifeboats. Have you ever been on a, on a ship in the middle of the ocean when the storm's coming, anybody? I have. It is straight up terrifying. Okay, the, the storm that I was in, I'm pretty certain was a whole lot less severe than this storm. And the storm I was in, it lasted about four hours. This one lasted two weeks. And the, the one that I was on, I remember we had four guys there at the rails, just emptying the contents of their stomach overboard, chumming for fish. And so I'm sure everybody on this ship, after two weeks, everybody was, was throwing up. If you've never experienced seasickness, it is like the worst thing ever. And once it starts, it like does not stop. It's terrible. It's the worst flu that you've ever had in your life. And I'm sure somebody on the ship had it for two weeks. And there's the, these guys are wanting to abandon ship and Paul stops them. But what we see here in that, we see this wonderful illustration. How divine sovereignty of God and human responsibility, they really work together. Okay? God has already said... Everyone's going to be okay. And Paul warned them, you're not going to be saved if you jump over the ship. Okay? So it's not a wise thing to abandon ship. So what that tells us is just because God is sovereign, that doesn't mean that we, need to, we should live life recklessly. As believers, we're still to engage life intelligently, thoughtfully, and purposefully. Now, we need to recognize God is not tied to the means of this world. At the same time, he still uses the means of this world to accomplish his will. And that's what we see from the Apostle Paul. Paul didn't disengage his mind and say, well, if God's going to get me to Rome, he's going to have to do it. And then pulls out an easy chair and just lay back on the deck of the boat and enjoy the rest of the ride. That's not what Paul did. He urged these men to trust God. So after Paul ends his speech, he doesn't just take it off. No, he engages vigorously at the situation at hand. 
So what's happening here, Paul is, is trusting God and him telling these men, hey, trust God. That has to sound like craziness to these men, right? But what Paul is able to do, he's able to get these men to work. And that work was to save people's lives. So what we need to know is that the Bible calls Christians to roll up their sleeves and get to work for the sake of the gospel. And even work for the gospel in light of the the problems of life. You know, so often churches have this notion that says, well, if God wants to save them, then God will have to bring them here, and then we'll preach the gospel, and God will save them. That's a real problem in so many Southern Baptist churches. Yes, we are preaching the gospel, but yet we are the ones that are called to engage our community with the gospel if we want to see the change that we say that we're praying for. To simply just open the doors and say, well, they'll come here and get saved. That's not going to cut it. We must be willing to leave this place and, and then to preach to other people. Basically, this is how you do that. You get involved in others' lives. That we as believers have to be engaged and involved in unbelievers' lives if we want to see the change that we're really praying for. So Paul knew that he must stand before Caesar. Well, that didn't mean that he's just going to simply let go and let God. That's what so many people think. God is sovereign, but God still calls Paul to be active and constantly sharing the gospel, being engaged in in unbelievers' life and the crew members to give them advice uh, and take a leadership role. And Paul does that so in the end, God's plan comes to fruition. Look what happens in verse 33, as soon as it was was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued um, continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from your head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. When they had all all were encouraged and ate some food, there were in all 276 persons on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and throwing out the wheat into the sea. Here's my fourth point for us this morning. Point number four. Life's problems provide a great opportunity to witness You see, at this moment, everybody on the ship, they're in desperation mode. And all of a sudden, Paul stands up among these seasoned um, sailors. And he says, hey, not one hair on your head is going to perish. And he also says, hey, get some food for strength. Now think about that. They haven't eaten for two weeks. Now, if you were to do that to me, you're not going to have to convince me real hard to get some food if I haven't eaten for two weeks, if you know me. This is going to be real easy. But at the same time, Paul was calm enough to break bread and, and stop and to give thanks to God before they ate. They had just made it through these terrible circumstances, and Paul has the opportunity to show everybody there the conviction of, of who he, was, he was, uh, had his faith in, and that enabled him to do what he did. You see, it's when the issues of life come that's when we can demonstrate our faith more powerfully than we can when everything is going great. There was a man by the name of Horatio Spafford. He was a Presbyterian layman in Chicago. 
He had established a, a very successful legal practice as a young businessman. He was a devout Christian. He had had many Christian friends, one of which was famous Dwight L. Moody in Chicago. And though Spafford was very successful, he had everything just burn up in the wake of the Chicago fire of 1871 because he was heavily invested in, in real estate along Lake Michigan's shoreline. He lost everything overnight. In a story reminiscent of Job, he had a son that, that, that died just before this disaster, but for Spafford, the worst was yet to come. Spafford wanted to take a vacation for his wife and his four daughters, and he also wanted to assist D.L. Moody in one of his uh, evangelistic campaigns in Great Britain. And Spafford planned a European vacation for, um, for, for his family in 1873. In November of that year, due to some unexpected business fortunes, um, Spafford sent his wife and his kids on to, to Europe, and he stayed behind, and he expected to follow soon after. It was November 22nd, 1873. The ship that was carrying his wife and his four daughters was struck by another vessel, and they, the ship sank in four, 12 minutes. Uh, it was several days later, the survivors finally made it to Cardiff, Wales, and Miss Spafford sent a telegram to her husband. It only had two words, saved alone. When Spafford got the telegram, he left immediately to join his wife, and he's crossing the Atlantic Ocean, and he told the captain of the ship, he gave him instructions that he was to be told when they reached the exact moment, the place, location where his, he lost his daughter's. History says in those, the darkness of the night, the captain sent a crew member to knock on Spafford's doors, and Spafford went to the railing of the ship, and it was from there that he penned the hymn that so many of us know so well. It is well with my soul. If you don't know the chorus, it goes like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. And as your pastor, that's my prayer for you this morning. That no matter how dark the situation may be, that God has taught us that we can sing, it is well, it is well with my soul. Because just like Paul, we can show people the difference that Jesus Christ has made in our lives. And, and sometimes we do that when the circumstances are the most difficult because when life is good, do you think our testimony is nearly as powerful as it is when, when it's the darkest? When the waves are crashing into the boats of life? When do you think we're going to have the greatest testimony? So what Paul does in, in front of these 275 individuals, he stops and he thanks God. He thanks God for the food they have and for the protection that he gave them to get them where he is. And for these unbelievers to see Paul do that... It would have been a powerful uh, witness for, for these men, not to mention how hungry Paul is and stopped to, to give a moment of thanks for God. There was a famous preacher who was diagnosed with brain cancer, and he said, quote, I have the opportunity now to suffer well for my congregation. You see, it's during the issues of life that we have a golden opportunity to have the greatest testimony to the goodness of God. Look in verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recon recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. 
So they cast off the anchors and left them at sea, and at the same time loosening the ropes that, that tied the, uh, the, the rudders. And hosting the mainsail to the wind, they made it for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the gressel aground. The bow stroke struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim, uh, swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plans. He ordered those who could swim to jump over, overboard first and to make it to land, and the rest to take planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was, all were brought safely to land. Here's my fifth and last point for us this morning. Point number five. God's plan rarely looks the way we think it should. Has anybody ever noticed that in life? God's plan rarely looks the way we think it should. God's plan is also usually very messy. I hope you didn't fail to notice there wasn't some miracle came over where the storm stopped. That's not what happened. You know, in the Old Testament, when, when Jonah was thrown overboard, immediately the, the sea stopped. In the New Testament, when Jesus stood up and told the, the, way, the wind, cease, be quiet, it stopped. That's not what happened here. Everything wasn't so nice and tidy. Also, God didn't perform some miracle where dolphins pop up and they walk safely on the backs of dolphins all the way to the shore. That's not what happened. This isn't some Disneyland cruise. Guys are swimming for their lives, and some can't swim, so they have to hold pieces of of the boat to make it safely. You see, Paul didn't know how everything was going to go down, but this is what he knew. God said, I'm getting to Rome. All of this, as messy as it was, it was all the plan of God. And this is what we see from Paul's life. And hopefully we see this in extension in our own life, that we're all under the sovereign plan of God. So when you and I, when we face storms of life as painful and emotional as they may be and exhausting the storms may be, we have to remember God's still in control. God is still sovereign. Is anybody here facing problems of life? I can't help but look at our country and say it's, it's, it's catching on fire, it's burning to the ground, our ship's coming apart. God's still in control. None of this is taking God by surprise. And so it's important for us that we need to know, recognize that and know this might be God's opportunity to do something way bigger than we could ever possibly imagine. My question for you individually today is, are you experiencing the problems of life? A more important question is, do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? Because maybe a sovereign God has brought you into a place like this in light of your circumstances to hear the gospel. And here's the gospel. God is sovereign. God is creator. That means God created you. And the Bible says for all have sinned. That means that every single one of us The best and the worst and everywhere in between, we've all sinned. That means you're a sinner, that means I'm a sinner. And the Bible says that the wage of sin is death, and that means we are to be separated from God forever because of our personal choice, our sin. But God didn't want that. The Bible says, yet while we're still sinners, Christ came and died for us. And if we accept that by faith, God grants us grace. Not that we deserve it, we can never earn it, but God gives it to us. The Bible says whoever calls the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you never called on Jesus Christ to save you, I would encourage you to do that now. Say something along the lines, I'm a sinner, God. There's nothing I can do. 
yet you love me and you came and died for me? Save me, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray this. Amen.